1: The lights were on, the fire was crackling and smoking. There was no pretending she wasn't home. It was like her worst nightmare, someone getting inside, appearing next to her bed, being unable to move or speak, but she was wide awake. Move. This time you have to act. Rachel reached for the poker, forced herself to her feet and across the room, socks silent on the floorboards. She waited by the door, back flat against the wall, poker by her side. They hadn't come up through the gate, up the road, and no one could descend the cliffs behind, well, almost no one, not without rope and kit. They could only have come from the river, that wooden sound, oars, a boat. In all the years, no one had ever found their way out to her property, just turned up, which is exactly as she wanted it. They knocked again and kept knocking. Rachel tried to breathe, to think through the noise, She wiggled her toes, clenched her hand tighter around the poker handle. The doors were locked, the windows locked, the perimeter secure. It had taken some doing, fortifying the old cottage against the world. Whoever it was would probably go away if she stayed quiet, if she could stay calm. Most of the things she worried about never came to pass. I know you're in there. Please, help. It was a woman's voice, then a baby crying. It was real. The shrill notes and the distress in them shut down her thinking, her breathing. The room started to spin, the fire to roar. She slid down the wall until she was crouching on the floor, arms around her legs, still gripping the poker. This isn't happening.
0: Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Inga Simpson is the author of three works of fiction, including Mr Wig, Nest and Where the Trees Were. Understory, published in 2017, is a memoir about Inga's decade spent living inside a Queensland forest and explores the beauty of nature and her own path as a writer. But today I'm talking to Inga Simpson about her latest novel, The Last Woman in the World. Inga, welcome to The Good Reading Podcast.
1: Hello, thank you for having me along.
0: So The Last Woman in the World, looking for ways to describe it, Armageddon, plague, doomsday, The <laughs> Final Reckoning. They're all words that come to mind when I'm trying to describe it, but how would you describe it?
1: Post-apocalyptic, survival novel, I guess you could call it. It's a a bit of a mishmash. I like both those genres. so We've ended up with something in between, I think.
0: All of those apply, I guess. But what I found particularly chilling about The Last Woman in the World is that it's set in a really familiar place, a real place on the New South Wales south coast, with names we recognise, Nimitabel, Cooma, Canberra, the Snowy Mountains, why this place in particular, when you could have chosen something more universal, any place, a fictional place even? Why this place?
1: Well, I wanted place to be a really strong feature in the novel, but to have something to ground it, and that's probably my strength too, writing about the natural world and place. So I started with an area very close to where I live, which I know very well, and I also wanted a significant journey, and I didn't want that to be too stereotypical Australian desert landscape or, um, yeah, to conjure up on any of those maybe overused images of what the Australian bush is. I wanted something a little bit different. I also wanted, I guess, to touch on a, a great aspect of the kind of Indigenous history of the far south coast, which is the Bundian Way and all of the other traditional walkways up from the coast up to the high country. All of those ideas fed in there. The great thing about this journey, going from a river you know, up over mountains, up to the high country and then across the plains to Canberra is the variety of landscapes. So it was allowing me to play to my strengths and also giving me a chance to put a number of obstacles in my protagonist's way.
0: A road trip, a road journey, if you like, without a road?
1: Yeah, there's a walking, well, there's a river journey, a walking journey and then a road trip. So it was a bit of everything, which was fun to ride and allowed me to bring in a bit of variety, what they're seeing, what they come up against, the odds they have to overcome, I guess.
0: And your main character, Rachel, she's a rather anxious individual. She's constantly reminding herself to breathe. That comes up a lot. She suffers from this anxiety and medicates herself for that condition. She's quite an unlikely hero and almost psychologically unsuited to the challenges she faces. Is she a hero or just a survivor?
1: I like to think she's heroic in the end. As you say, an unlikely hero, which is what I absolutely what I wanted, makes her first decision very tough for her. She's secluded herself. She's locked herself away from the world for a number of reasons. And here she's presented with this tough choice. You know, do I help these people in need or do I turn them away, you know, and, and stick to my safe zone? So she's testing herself just leaving the house. But in some ways she is a likely hero in that she's... Um, big and tall and strong and confident just walking through the landscape, um, carrying a heavy load, navigating a map, all those things. She can do. So in some ways she is well-suited. It's just people that are her problem. And some of that problem has been diminished out there in the world, let's say.
0: And the whole story follows this experience of two women. um, And despite the Rachel's condition, and the horror she's facing through this journey, there's a strong sense of nurturing as she leads and cares for Hannah, the other character, for Hannah and her baby. But uh, she's also seems like a fairly unlikely humanitarian, given that she'd really chosen to shut out most of humanity.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's the other aspect of her unlikeliness for for the role, I guess. She wouldn't get the job in an interview process, but... It's only her left around, so she gets it by default. And, you know, in the process, finds out what she's capable of. And I was very interested in that. You know, you put a character under pressure and, you know, we're all like this. I saw this in the bushfires. You know, you don't know quite what you're capable of, what your strengths are, what your limits are, unless you're put in a situation where you have to push up against those limits, which is what happens to Rachel. And the, she has no affinity with the child initially. Um, but that changes over the course of the novel. So this is an aspect of human nature I'm hoping most people can identify with.
0: Rachel lives in this kind of, well, prior to the arrival of Hannah and her baby, this glorious solitude, I suppose. As I read about you, I thought, well, there's a certain number of parallels to the author's (laughs) life there. And that kind of made me think, what is the value of solitude for you uh, as an author, but also as a literary device and interrupting that solitude?
1: For myself, and you know rachel's a creative person as well she's a glass maker so for a creative person solitude's important you know to be able to immerse yourself in a big project and see it through um to to stay with it you know even when you're not physically doing it but stay with it mentally um psychologically emotionally to commit to that project yeah it allows for a huge amount of Focus that I find is not the same if other people are around and you're juggling your own needs with someone else's. Um, as a device, yeah, presented the plot opportunity for that initial conflict. You know, will she stay? Will she go? And then how will she deal with people in, in close proximity after all this time? You know, how can she adapt to that, having been quite selfish perhaps, you know, in her choices and relying on other people to support her? Now, those supports have been withdrawn, it looks like, and and she has to support another human being, act, act in the interests of others and, yeah, in the interests of society too. I mean, she has to make a number of choices that are not just for herself or her creative practice, her comforts, but, yeah, for the good of humanity, which, again, you know, we don't know what we're capable of or what we would do until we're placed in those sort of situations, which is, I guess, the... This part of the psychology of the novel.
0: It really is a psychological journey that she goes through and she comes out a different person on the other side.
1: I like to talk about the metaphor of the glass. You know, glass is really tough in some forms and really fragile in others and in the process of making, glass making, glass blowing, you know, is is transformed. So I wanted that for, for Rachel as well. Um, and again, this is partly in the end reflected the experience my experience of the bushfires that you know that i felt fundamentally changed by that experience and i found that a lot of people who went through that in in their own ways every one had a different experience of it but the the other side of that experience also a fire experience uh, we were all quite different and the people who hadn't been through it were different so um, yeah i wanted to draw on that what trauma and massive change on this scale can do to people. I mean, we were seeing it with COVID, how society has changed, how communities have changed, how family units have changed, how we've changed as individuals. I guess that's still to be seen. But, yeah, I wanted Rachel's personal journey to be quite extreme. I guess as COVID was going on in the background as well through the editing stages, just that sense that the the planet was out of whack if you like, and that all these things were connected, playing with that in a creative sense within this world.
0: It's very strong in in its sense of nature too, uh, and your non-fiction writing, your non-fiction nature writing is one of the forms that runs parallel to your fiction writing, uh, particularly in things like uh, The Book of Australian Trees and also in Understory, your memoir. I wondered if your fiction and your non-fiction are now inseparable.
1: I mean, in some ways there's not a great deal of difference between them. I remember asking the nature writer, Rick Bass, an American nature writer, you know, the difference between writing fiction and nonfiction. And he just said, well, well, they're all just stories. Uh, And I think there's some truth in that. In some ways, fiction allows me to get to the truth of things more easily than nonfiction does. And, to, um, you know, in talking about environmental issues and the state of the planet, fiction is actually easier because my job is to get the reader to care about my character, not to teach them anything, or to try and impress upon the reader all of the threats facing a particular natural environment or all of the atrocities that have occurred. I mean, we're hearing a lot of that. So in a way, I think fiction might be the stronger tool in my box to reaching readers and bridging the gap between the human world and the natural world, which is ultimately the same thing.
0: Trees tell stories about places. Is that something that resonates deeply with you? And through that, are you trying to cultivate a greater awareness of the natural world?
1: I'll probably do that without trying, but I am also trying. Awareness, yes, but also connection, you know, an emotional connection, trying to bridge that gap for the reader, allow them to imagine a life closer to nature. Um, Most of my characters are comfortable in nature, very comfortable. For a lot of us, we've drifted away from the natural world in our everyday lives and it's no longer so comfortable. So I'm trying to, through knowledge, awareness um, and hopefully intriguing characters that bring, bring readers close.
0: And that, in a way, brings us back to Rachel because Rachel's experience in this journey is almost like this total sensory experience. She's extremely aware of everything that's going on around her. Do you advocate for this kind of... Sixth sense, I suppose, this extrasensory thing that we should cultivate in relation to nature and the way we treat it.
1: Probably didn't think of it that way. I actually gave—I uh, don't suffer from anxiety myself, or I didn't before the bushfires. Um, so you know, to try and try and identify with Rachel's character, I gave her something that I do have, which is this kind of uh, sensory. Attunement, Well, you know, I don't know how much of it is born and how much of it has been nurtured um, through my experiences. But, yeah, I'm not, like Rachel, I'm not so great in the human world or a kind of a city environment. Um, There's just too much kind of sensory stimulation, whereas in the natural world uh, I'm at ease, I'm at peace, but very attuned and and probably notice things. A lot of people might not notice, uh, certainly not initially. So... It was partly me sharing that and trying to find a way to draw on my own emotions and so on and experiences in getting Rachel's character on the page. I mean a lot of a lot of her is not me at all. so um, But yeah, definitely it was along the journey she teaches Hannah uh, quite a bit, I think, about the natural world and how to survive in it. So perhaps I was trying to teach the reader in that way too, or to open up my experience of the natural world in that way for the reader to share.
0: Well, it's certainly a wonderful book to read. And I thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast.
1: Oh, thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed the book. And yeah, lovely to talk with you.
0: I've been talking to Inga Simpson about her book, The Last Woman in the World. It's published by Hachette and is available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening. This Good Reading podcast was brought to you by Luxury Read. Why not spoil yourself or give the gift of a Luxury Read subscription today? Visit luxuryread.com.au to find out how.